<laughs> and I do take the word back, but I was channeling that song. And do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I totally just did like a hard eye roll and a cringe simultaneously. Because it reminds me of that shirt that I had that says, nothing good ever starts with the word ladies. (laughs) Anyway, what I really do mean is anybody listening here today, it is time that we talk about the power that women have. And to be clear, I'm saying anybody who identifies as a woman and also anybody who knows or loves a woman, we need to talk. Because we need to talk about the state of womanhood today and the power we don't even realize we have. And to be honest, a lot of the self-flagellation and segregation that we need to step away from so we can embrace our whole selves and each other because we can make massive change together. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to dismantle systemic racism. We're your biracial hosts, Sarah and Misasha. So as we're recording this, we are halfway through Women's History Month. And for the record, when we say women in this episode, and I don't think we can say this enough, we're talking about anyone who identifies as a woman. And since I'm real big on the eye rolls today, another hard eye roll to Marjorie Taylor Greene and her hugely disrespectful and scientifically incorrect PS signed in Congress. So have you ever wondered why Women's History Month is in March? I have not wondered that, but I'm excited to learn. (laughs) Well, good, because I have answers. According to the Washington Post, in 1980, President Jimmy Carter proclaimed Women's History Week in March to coincide with International Women's Day, which is March 8th this year. Seven years later, Congress declared all of March to be Women's History Month. I'm glad we got upgraded from like a week to a month. Uh, Sounds exactly like how Black History Month got started in February. Am I correct on that similarity? Yeah. Okay. So during the past 30 years from that point, schools and communities across the country have highlighted women's contributions to history in increasingly creative ways throughout the month of March. The thing about having a month dedicated to a specific type of history, though. I knew there was going to be a but. (laughs) Did you feel that pause? Yeah. Yes. Is that it is inherently problematic. When we have a month dedicated to Black history, as February was, it reinforces the idea, consciously or not, that Black history is something separate from history as a whole. And the same thing goes for Women's History Month. As the Washington Post notes, Women's History Month unintentionally reinforces the prevailing idea that when women do something, it is called women's history. And when men do something, it is called history. Women's History Month also allows state school boards and curricular committees to feel as though they are including women without doing enough to update textbooks and state standards, which ultimately undermine the very goals that reformers and historians aim to achieve with the designation. And if that sounds familiar, again, we think, you know, when we consider how little time is devoted to Black history in schools or other history that's not aligned with the mainstream, which is code word for white and male history in this country. That's really interesting. You know, like on a pop culture thing that reminds me of like the NBA and the WNBA and how much less attention it gets. So it's interesting. Yeah. All right. So back to women. The other problematic part about having a Women's History Month when we have a separate Black History Month and an Asian Heritage Month and a Latinx Heritage Month and a Native American History Heritage Month, and I could go on, is that it somehow separates out women from people of color. We've seen that happen through the whitewashing of women's history, how suffragettes and like the ones we know so well are white. And often we're really just fighting for the vote for white women, as we discuss in 
episode three about the women's movement. Whoa, long time ago. Yeah, way back, way back. Because women of color were excluded from the 19th Amendment, which gave white women the right to vote. So women of color did not get the right to vote until the Voting Rights Act in 1965. So little asterisk there for everyone who celebrated the centennial of the 19th Amendment last year. That wasn't all women's right to vote, just if you're white. And it's not just white men doing the whitewashing. It's white women, too. So I do want to stop and like insert a quick gut check, because when we were just talking about the right to vote for all women versus the right to vote for white women, we were talking about a concept called intersectionality. And we talked about that a lot in some of our earliest episodes for the podcast. It was first coined by Kimberly Crenshaw and was referring to the intersection of race and gender. And if you're starting to tune out with this word because it feels a little heavy, hang tight. And I just would like to, you know, geek out a little on the legal side because, and we're warming up to my favorite topic, the Constitution, under which race is a protected class and gender is a protected class, but the combination of race and gender was not protected, which is what Kimberly Crenshaw really brought to light when she started talking about intersectionality. And because that specifically, the race and gender together was not protected under the Constitution, courts didn't protect it. Which makes, you know, no sense. I know, but that's how, you know, law rolls sometimes. Now that the word is so much more expansive, at least how we like to think about it, it's important to get a little more comfortable with it. And for us, it means that we show up as our whole selves and not just as our parts. So we can be women and black, not we. I mean, I, we can be women and half Japanese and half white. Some people can be women and Jewish, women and queer, women and disabled. I mean, you get the picture. So I just want to take a moment to ask, you know, what do you associate with the word intersectionality? And we have heard the pushback. That's why I noted that before. I mean, some people say it feels too taxing to consider or it disrupts my ideals of feminism or it's like too much. And I think then it's really important to sort of consider how the term intersectionality and your feelings about it might reflect on your feelings about the people who are calling for intersectionality. So true. You know, I heard Dr. Jennifer Nash, who is a professor, talk about intersectionality. And she said the great part about intersectionality is that you can really visualize it. It's literally the point of connection for so many people and how they identify and see themselves and others. However, and we saw this in the reaction to the first Women's March back in 2017, when the issue of representation of all women was brought up in terms of who attended the march and who helped plan the march, there was a backlash from white feminism about how intersectionality was basically ruining the party. In other words, the backlash was we had this great moment of connectivity and then we had to, quote, bring race into it. And I hope you can feel the air quotes there, you know, which really begs the question, were we truly connected as women in those moments if only some women were invited to the party? I like that. I think this is the point. Honoring those points of connection, those intersections and looking for those allows us to show up for all women. You know, you can't necessarily just read or think your way into being a better feminist, or if you prefer the term womanist, you know, even if you just use the right language, but if you are heart led and you look for the commonality between us and honor the differences, and not only honor, we would add, but really uplift the differences while focusing on the commonalities, we can make change. But here's the thing, people, we need to unify as women. 
According to the census, the female population of the United States is 50.8%. That means that in the United States, women are the physical majority in this country. I mean, I know it's a slim margin. And also, I recognize that this stat may not take into account how we see and account for sex and gender in this country. But the message is hopefully pretty clear. We are the majority. And that means that if all the women out there, or even most of the women and some men voted for something, it could pass. It would pass numerically. And that is a ton of power. I love thinking about the majority, right? My law school class from Columbia in 2004 was the first time we had more women than men as entering first-year law students, Wow, which is amazing, right? And those women are now doing amazing things. But we weren't the only law school class with that demographic, and we won't be the last. Other industries are looking like that class looked. And the great part is, as we've seen, and especially has been highlighted for us through these you know, soul-crushing last four years, majority equals power. But you know, given what we just talked about, we have also been, and we are the numerical majority, and we still can't unify like it. So what if... We were to apply authenticity and intersectionality as frameworks as to how we include instead of excluding women's narratives. And really what I'm saying is this comes down to care. How do we care for ourselves, our truths, and each other? How should we be caring for each other? What solidarities can we create? You know, we listened to that episode with Dr. Irvin Staub, and he said it's, it goes beyond empathy. We do need to have empathy, and we also need to take this feeling of responsibility for each other. So how can we create responsibility for other people's truths and their stories? How much do we care to do that? Right, because we have this moment now to really show up for each other, right? As we are recording this, we are a year into the COVID-19 shutdown, and which means we live in a unprecedented, and P.S., wasn't that the most overused word in the past year time? The third eye roll of this episode. Right? Yes. So women are bearing the brunt of a lot of things, right, as a result, including losing jobs, offering unpaid care to others, and managing the emotions not only of themselves, but of a whole lot of people around them. My neck just almost bobbed. Yeah. Like... (laughs) I saw you nodding very fiercely over there. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, we know that in December 2020, all of the jobs lost were those of women. We know that women, and in particular, Black and brown women, are bearing the brunt of this pandemic. We know that working moms are leaving the workforce at rapid rates, and we've heard that this will set us back, and by us, I mean all women, perhaps as much as 25 years. So... Like you were saying, Sarah, why not stand together now and use our voices to include, not exclude, the narratives of all women so that when policies, when laws, when plans start coming around and coming together, all women can stand up and stand together and be cognizant of both our differences and our fundamental similarities and still support each other. All right. So if you're this far into our TED Talk, you may be asking yourself, (laughs) I put that in there just for you. This sounds great. But how do I actually do this? You know, uh, we love practicalities here. And on the easy side, I mean, really, if you have any platform, and we are here to say, if you really stop to think for a moment, everybody has some sphere of influence. You know, they might be more formal, like a podcast, hello, or a business or a PTA meeting or a social club of some sort. You know, there's got to be a place where it's pretty clear how you can have influence. Start thinking about what that group looks like. 
what it could look like if, if more narratives were included and how you might take steps to make that happen. You know, I've heard of OBGYNs who have their practice and who are advocating when they're expanding doctors to look for doctors of color, you know, and it may not always happen the first time, but if you have that intention and you keep speaking up, that really matters. And ultimately it's about respecting, honoring, and appreciating our different experiences and stories and making sure we're all getting what we need as human beings. Here's the second point. And I'm really curious who this resonates with because we haven't really brought religion into the podcast yet very much. No, no. But it's a conversation we've been having behind the scenes and and I want to get to it and I would love input, but we want to encourage those of you with church or religious groups to take a moment. Like I said, I mean, I think this could be a whole episode or even a whole darn podcast arc or probably an entire podcast. (laughs) And I'm sure they exist already out there too. But looking at the history of the church and the purpose of its communities And be that as it may, in so much of this country, the church or, you know, in some areas, it's your synagogue or your mosque or your temple, your religious group and identity. I mean, these organizations are at the center of people's communities. Oftentimes, they're structured in a way that these communities meet every week, people learn together, and they look out for others who are in times of crisis within their communities. And they also often offer opportunities to break bread together. And yet, even within those structures, even from different church communities who are within the same denomination, their responses towards inclusivity and welcoming and accepting and even celebrating differences in the eyes of their gods can be very, very different. So it could be worth reflecting on where you and your religious community stand on issues of intersectionality and how you might shift the needle even a little bit through simple conversations or questions or noticing how people are showing up or not for each other, both within your community and in the larger community you serve. So true. All right. Now, real talk. Have you checked in with your girlfriends lately? How you doing me, Sasha? <laughs> I know, right? It's like, fortunately, we have a podcast to do that on. But for real, even if all the stats show us how similar our race, socioeconomics, religious beliefs, nationalities, and you know, so many other factors are when it comes to our close friendship groups, not everyone is wired the same way. And I think that's been highlighted and exacerbated over this past year. Introverts are handling the pandemic-related closures very differently than extroverts. Those with less disposable income or those who are, you know, fighting to make ends meet really aren't getting away on much needed vacations to recharge or aren't having any time, period. They're struggling to survive. What silent weights are your girlfriends carrying? Because, you know, if you think about it, and I really want you to think about it, haven't we all sort of been trained to not ask for help? and not express our anger and frustration with the current state of the world? Cross-reference. Rage Becomes Her Interview (laughs) with Soraya Shamali a few episodes ago. Yes, absolutely. So important to remember to check in with your girlfriends. But on that note, you know, when's the last time you did a community audit for yourself? And a lot of times I bring this up with people and they're like, I've never done one. What on earth is a community audit? I personally am a huge fan and I usually do it once a year. And I really want you to know it comes not from me, right? It's from a brilliant woman named Cheryl Richardson. And she had it in her book, Take Time for Your Life. And it's basically bringing your community to a more conscious plane by actually writing it out. We each need support in the different areas that I'm going to sort of explain to you and I'll explain how this process works because if you want to do it, here's the guide. I love this. You take a sheet of paper, you draw six columns, and at the top you write family, children, career, spiritual, closest friends, like the people you will pour your heart out to, and your acquaintances. And then you take basically the entire day to brain dump everybody you can think of into one of those lists, and they can only show up once on the list. So you have to place them in the category that best suits you. And then you check out the balance. Like the first time I did this, 
I had way more acquaintances and zero people in my spiritual community. And I was like, whoa, I didn't realize that, you know, do you assess like, is this balance feeling good for me? And then take an extra step and look at the different identities of people on your list. What shows up? What intersectionalities do you see or not see in this list? And then you take a step to make change. Like if anybody on the list gives you meh energy, and I really think you just need to trust your gut, you will know <laughs> if people give you meh. Like if you see their name and you're like, ugh, True. at all, even if you're like, I'm not supposed to feel that way, you cross them out on your list, physically cross them out. If you find someone on that, like on one list that might suit you more in a different category, like an acquaintance that you think would make a really cool addition to your spiritual support community, you like circle their name and drag them to your new category. And I think you'd be surprised you know, I don't know if you've heard about writing down your goals and how sometimes the 10-year life goals, they come true without you even realizing them sometimes. Spending time looking at your community and writing it out can actually make a change in who shows up in your community and how you feel supported within the next year or two. I love that. And you don't have to show your list to anybody else. You can literally hide it. Do not feel like you can't be honest with your own piece of paper. Thank you for that permission, because you know how I feel about that. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted privacy and all that. But, you know, but I think what we wanted to end with is that if we're going to stand for each other, right, that starts with you. So all of these things that we just talked to you about is a lot of internal reflection. So you want to focus on looking inward, right, at all of your identities and being true to your whole self. And, you know, this week I opened my email and Effie's Paper, which is an amazingly beautiful stationery company, sent this in their weekly email. And it was something that really rang true for both of us, I think. So we wanted to share this with you. To the women who are labeled aggressive, keep on being assertive, bossy, keep on leading, difficult, keep telling the truth, too much, keep taking up space, awkward, keep asking those hard questions, continue to be your beautiful self, and let's be our beautiful selves in support of all women. Love what you're hearing? Follow us at the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get our fresh new insights on how you can help dismantle systemic racism one conversation at a time every Wednesday. Do you love learning via visuals? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women podcast and at Twitter at DWW podcast. And do you want us to keep making good work? Support our Patreon and keep an eye out for opportunities to use our webinars, DEI consulting work, and more if you want us to help bring change into your own spaces. 